Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the Crockcast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate and today I'm joined by Dr. Xander Combrig of uh, Tishwane uh, University, right? Yeah, it's the Tishwane University of Technology. So, uh, Xander, mind telling us how you first uh, got into reptiles and your path and research and up to this point? Yeah, um, Nate, I mean, I've been the last 20 years or so, I've been involved with um, with Nile crocodiles, uh, research, conservation, management. Um, I've started in uh, 2002 with a master's degree. Um, I've always been interested in reptiles um, and amphibians, of course, but specifically crocodiles. And uh, here in Southern Africa, we have uh, only really the Nile crocodile. So um, I got the opportunity um, in 2002 to study a particular water body called Lake Sabai, um, which is the largest freshwater lake system in Southern Africa. So I kind of kicked off my um, interest and my research there. Um, and then from there on, I worked for, for about 15 years in the scientific services um, department of the local conservation agency known as Ezonvelo Kaiserin Wildlife. And yeah, there I got a lot more opportunities to be involved in crocodile um, conservation, monitoring uh, which led to a PhD, um, and uh, the last seven years or so, I've been involved in the Twan University of Technology. But been very fortunate to still carry on with crocodile work in uh, in, in in Southern Africa. So it's really been it's been an interesting twenty years from that perspective. Yeah. So have you like always been interested in uh, crocodilians, or is this something that happened uh, later in life? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's from, from when I was young. Uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in a beautiful scenic part of South Africa, um, the uh, sort of Cape, Cape area where there obviously isn't any crocodilians. Um, but yeah, so early on in life, I, you know, got really interested. And thankfully, it just worked out um, that I was able to to really branch into um, crocodiles and I've been very fortunate in that um, I've had the opportunity to um, visit numerous countries, um, present at a number of uh, crocodile specialist group working meetings in different parts of the world and also seen other crocodilians in, in the world. So um, it's, it's, it's really been, it's really been interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen in your research do a fair bit of studying on like a trace metal and lead exposure and crocodilians. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So um, that study, uh, we looked at organo organochlorine pesticides um, poisoning in in Nile crocodiles, and uh, what we did is um, we found that um, by by sampling fat from live crocodiles. Um, we, we found that there are really high levels of specifically DDT in Nile crocodiles. Um, that kind of uh, branched off from an earlier study looking at DDT in sediments, as well as DDT accumulation in fish. 
So um, here in South Africa, um, there's still malaria. Um, and in that particular part of the KwaZulu-Natal province, there's up until about 15 years ago, there were still some heavily sprayed um, uh, programs where, where people were using DDT to combat malaria. So what we found was that um, there was a gradient uh, of, um, of, of from St. Lucia, Lake Sabai, where I did my master's, all the way up to Cozy Bay. We found that the more north you go, closer to Mozambique, where most of the DDT spraying occurred, um, there was definitely an increase in the um, in DDT levels um, in, in in the crocodiles, and the levels that we found was were some of the highest ever recorded in in croc crocodilians. So it's obviously a big concern um, because we we don't fully understand the effect of uh, the DDT accumulation um, and the effect on reproductive fitness. And uh, specifically, you know, also the younger, the younger cohorts like like hatchlings and juveniles. So, yeah, they, it, 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 it's a bit of a concern to have these um, these uh, metabolites in live crocodiles. And it's all to do with, um, you know, with just the way that these uh, contaminants bioaccumulate up the, the, the food web because the crocodiles um, ingest fish. Um, Nile crocodiles uh, do also, um, of course, they do take larger mammalian prey, but the main prey species um, within the systems that we've researched is, is fish. So that's where they, you know, they, they get the, the DDT from. So the fish eat the smaller, smaller fish, um, inverts, um, sort of aquatic macrophytes, and by ingesting that it sort of bioaccumulates through the through the food web and it ends up in in crocodiles being the apex um, predator in the in those aquatic systems yeah as an american whenever you hear ddt it's usually attached to something about uh how it's bioaccumulation of bald eagles cause uh um problems with the formation of eggshells i don't know if something like that happened with uh crocs at all or not yeah, so there's been some studies in terms of, uh, I think most of the studies, in fact, on DDT and crocodilians was exactly that, uh, focused more sort of on the on the eggs and eggshells. And uh, DDT has got this effect, I think, of a thinning effect um, of eggshells. And uh, so our study didn't look at eggshells, but they, there was a study conducted in uh, Kruger National Park, which is also in South Africa. And they did find DDT in in eggs in in, in all crocodile eggs. So that needs to be explored a bit more in future. But definitely, it yeah, there is a, a definite negative effect by you know having DDT levels in uh, in all crocodile eggs. Yeah. So, uh, do you know what other measures they uh, use in these more malaria-ridden regions other than DDT now? Uh, sorry, just say again. Um, do you know what other measures they use to combat malaria in those regions other right. than DDT now? Yeah, yeah. So um, really they don't. I mean, the only thing that's really changed, uh, Nate, uh, sort of in the last 20 years or so, is just the way that they apply the DDT. So DDT is banned, um, but uh, it is still, uh, or should I say DDT spraying is banned, but it is still used in households. So 
in the past where they would go in airplanes and spray DDT over vast areas and obviously have a very adverse environmental impact. Nowadays, um, you know, specifically in southern Mozambique, um, but also in probably in northeastern KwaZulu-Natal, uh, DDT is applied, you know, at the household. So they would go in and just spray the sort of, you know, the, the roof um, and places where um, mosquitoes could, could occur. So it's a lot more selective and it obviously is, is a lot better than spraying it from airplanes. Um, so that thankfully have stopped, at least in South Africa. But I think in Mozambique, there's quite likely still areas where they do apply DDT from, from the air. But yeah, in South Africa, it's applied a lot more selectively. So they, the, surely the footprint would be a lot smaller now. Okay. I saw you also did some research with uh, zero was lead, high lead exposure. Is that tied in with DDT as well, or is that separate? Yeah. So um, kind of uh, uh, the, the lead story is, is is a bit separate from the from the DDT, but we also um, worked in the same areas. Um, uh, we've started with a colleague of mine, um, Dr. John Warner, who's who's now heading up the alligator um, program in Texas Parks and Wildlife. So John did his PhD with me, and um, he started um, by looking at um, lead um, accumulation in crocodiles um, within a, a number of water bodies in South Africa, mainly on the KwaZulu-Natal side. And uh, yeah, that that, that um, was was very sort of disturbing in the in the sense that um, the lead levels and what we did is we uh, sampled lead. Um, well, we sampled blood from from live Ralph live free roaming crocodiles, and we found um, you know the highest blood lead levels ever recorded, um, not only in crocodilians but in invert in any vertebrate species. So that, that was very alarming, um, and we've followed up with that initial research in 20, 2010 with more studies and, yeah, the same, the same thing every time, um, having, you know, these uh, crocodiles with really high lead levels. And the latest, uh, what we've also found is um, not only do these crocs you know, are, are, not only do they live with these very high blood lead levels, but they also show other signs like anemia and tooth loss, which, um, you know, which we found in, in really some of the, the adult males with, with very high blood lead levels. So a, quite an interesting observation was that um, it was mainly the, uh, the males um, that carries the high blood lead levels. The females also have high blood lead levels, but significantly less so um, than the males. And uh, sort of our hypothesis uh, is that uh, the females do um, rid themselves of these lead levels by, um, you know, sequestrating the lead within um, clutches of eggs. So that potentially could be one way um, for these females to rid themselves from, from the lead. But um, we have a, another study that is going to start later on this year where we will be looking also um, at uh, um, looking into the stomachs of the crocs because what we found, Nate, was that um, 
all of the necropsies that we did on uh, uh, crocodiles that died uh, from various causes, they all contained uh, lead sinkers, so fishing weights, as well as what we call drop shots. So that's um, it's sort of an artificial lure um, that contains lead and a hook in. Um, and we we suspect that, um, you know, the crocs, um, they pick up these lead fishing weights in the system, um, as well as actively targeting um, fishermen's drop shots. And by by doing that, they they ingest lead, um, and then this lead obviously elevate within the blood, and then it it's sequestrated within the organs, and then finally in the bone. So we're going to carry on with uh, the work on wild crocs, also uh, doing stomach lavages, where we will be um, pumping stomachs to look at the at to see if there are any uh, fishing weights and drop shots within the stomachs of course all crocodilians um, uh, pick up gastroliths so they pick up stones um, but this particular system that we've been working in is is on the coast though there's very little stones so that's why we think they actively target these fishing weights that's lying on the bottom and by uh, by doing that they they you know, really uh, get these high, high lead levels. And we're also going to start a experimental study um, to look really at what is the effect of this lead. Because what we've seen, Nate, is that these um, Nile crocodiles, like numerous other crocodilian species, although they are swimming around with these really high blood lead levels, seemingly they are fine. So they just have this ability um, you know, to to cope with these incredible high uh, lead levels, but we don't know what the effect is of that in terms of reproduction, in terms of fitness um, and health. Although we have seen some clinical signs, you know, with anemia and tooth loss um, within these uh, large adults. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, tooth loss, considering it's, you know, it's been well known that old male crocs and crocodilians tend to lose teeth as they get older. And I've never heard reason explained why, but it seems like a pretty good reason. But uh, I did have uh, Dr. Marissa Telez on twice. The second time was she was talking about the crocodilian parasitology. She was talking about her research, I, I think it was with American alligators, with uh, stomach nematodes helping with like the breakdown and metabolization of like heavy, heavy metals and stuff that are accidentally ingested. I don't know. If, right. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, you know, alligator to crocodile, tomato to uh, apple to orange or whatever, but Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean that could be something that we that we could also look at. Um there certainly is there, there are ways that they might rid themselves of these of these late burdens, but uh yeah, we have not investigated nematodes, but yeah. So I mean the biology to some extent is the same for all crocodilians, I guess. So uh, that would be an interesting um, avenue to also uh, investigate with our Nile crocs in South Africa. Yeah, but also might just be alligators have that one specific species of nematode, possibly. But yeah, but uh, yeah, also with the whole lead poisoning. I mean, we're a higher mammal, so we're physiologically quite a bit different than a crocodilian. But the most noticeable thing in humans is like reduced IQ with high level levels. It's kind of hard to test that on a wild croc, I guess, but 
Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things, Nate, that's been very interesting is also um, one of the effects of lead poisoning is just uh, lack of movement um, and uh, coordination. And um, what we found with uh, some of the crocs that uh, we've tested for lead were also the same individuals that we had uh, satellite transmitters on. And we were able to follow them around um, and based on movement and activity, seemingly, you know, they are no different to any of the other uh, uh, study animals that we've uh, that we've had transmitters on. So it is interesting. I mean, certainly with mammals, it seems like, um, you know, uh, we can't cope. Even birds can't cope with um, the sort of the lead levels that we've seen with these null crocodiles. So. It is really just a, it's a mystery how they um, are able to cope with these really very, very high um, lead levels. Um, but as I've mentioned, uh, we, we don't know how, how that actually impacts in other you know, parts of the biology and ecology of the species. Yeah. Uh, speaking of other biology and ecology, you also did research with uh, like nesting behavior and uh, that site location uh, selection with now crocs you want to talk about that yeah so i mean um that was also with uh, with john warner um we we did our phds basically together at saint lucia and um so we were able to fit a number of satellite transmitters on on nesting females um and uh what we found um, was that these females first of all they um you know they have really really they displayed unbelievable maternal um, care and behavior um, and uh, um, just the um, the amount of time that they would spend on or near the nest um, was was really amazing and we were able to quantify that um, so um, we had a particular female that basically spent 99.9 percent of the time within sort of 20 meters of a nest you know, without going into the hectares and the technical detail. But effectively, um, you know, like all crocodilians, null crocodiles are really good mothers and they invest, you know, um, that three months um, of, of that particular year on the nest. Um, what we found is mostly at night, uh, the females would come onto the nest and in the day they would hang around in a water body very close to the nest. Uh, some nests were quite far from the actual lake. Um, so those females would then spend very close to the nesting site under vegetation. Um, I'm talking about a couple of hundred meters from the water. So they would just literally spend the entire day uh, hiding in thick vegetation. And at night they would come, come up on the nest. Um, and uh, we've also recorded very interesting behavior in terms of predation. So we know that here um, in, uh, in St. Lucia, there's two major predators, um, water monitor um, and water mongoose. So water monitor is more sort of your diurnal predator and the mongoose more of a nocturnal predator. But what we found is that, uh, you know, the raiding of these nests um, carried on for, for up until like 12 days. So even though the female will return to the nest, the um, the monitor lizard will continue raiding that that nest when she is physically not not at the nest site. Um, so that that does have a big impact. And um, 
but using camera traps and the the satellite telemetry you know it it gave us a really good insight into the behavior of these females and also i mean we know that females um they they reused nest sites so we were able to you know to also document the exact same female coming back to the exact same nest site um you know for for one or two years um we we've put in color coded uh, cattle tags within the tails of the of the crocodiles um as well as the satellite transmitters so you know the whole um behavior is very interesting and also that sort of uh talks to you know just what we don't know is you know uh, if if there's droughts or uh, like at the moment where there's a lot of fresh water at St Lucia you know how do these females um respond to um the fact that uh, certain nesting sites might be flooded or it might be completely devoid of fresh water so we we do know um that they will reuse or use new nesting sites as well but um most certainly they they definitely come back uh, if if that when nesting site is is viable they will come back to the exact same site to to nest and to re-nest again later on yeah and uh now crocs those are um uh burrowing nesters right yeah 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 so they they construct hole in the sand um yeah like some some other true crocodiles as well yeah so they not uh mount nesters like american alligators and a lot of the you know the, all the caimans from from south america yeah yeah Let's see um so maybe not in st lucia but south africa is kind of the southernmost point in uh, the nile crocs uh, range so what is a nile crocs dis distribution in south africa yeah so i mean that that that's an interesting thing because um uh, the the St Lucia system that I talked about um, that's actually the most southern viable breeding uh, system for the species. Um, so historically, Nile crocodiles occurred way down into the Western Cape, um, and uh, a couple of years ago we described a footprint um, with within a sandstone. Uh, piece, um, uh, you know, right down in the Kierbooms River. So historically, they occurred way down, but uh, um, today, basically, from the Tugela River um, on the on the KwaZulu-Natal coast, that's sort of the southernmost point of of Nile crocodiles. Um, and then they they uh, you know along the coast as well. There's a couple of protected areas like Shishlubi Umfelozi Park, where we have Nile crocodiles, and all the way up. The coast, Cozy Bay. I talked about Lake Sabaya, and then sort of uh, um, it it goes into um, the Limpopo and uh, um, uh, and Mpumalanga provinces. So the eastern side, really, of South Africa, the northeastern side, um, and there's there's quite a few sort of eastern flowing rivers. And and although we have seen a decline in almost all populations of Nile crocodiles. Um, you know, we still, we, you know, we still have uh, representative populations in most of those uh, rivers, all the way up to Kruger National Park, and then also the Limpopo River, which is our most northern river, um, sharing, you know, with uh, with Botswana and 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 Zimbabwe. 
So sort of the northeastern part of South Africa is is the range of the Nile crocodile. Yeah, so uh, that footprint from the Western Cape, that was you said was from the Pleistocene, right? Yeah, yeah, that that was about a I think one hundred and twenty thousand years ago that that footprint was made. So by by that time, obviously with climate change, um, a lot has happened and the distribution has just shrinked a lot, but also just with human persecution. So like like everywhere else since you know. Um, uh, the, especially the 1940s, 1950s, uh, there's been a lot of um, sort of just programs uh, to to kill crocs um, for skins and also just to try and exterminate them from a lot of water bodies because of, you know, competing with agriculture and fishing, um, human livelihood. So, yeah, unfortunately, the story is not that great. And as opposed to countries like... Um, like America, where you have the American alligator that came back um, and you have really healthy populations, Louisiana, um, you know, Florida and a couple of other states, the same with Australia and the northern end. Uh, we, you know, we haven't seen that sort of bounce back, um, even though since the late 1960s, Nile crocodiles have been protected in South Africa. So, uh, also, a lot of our crocodile populations are not within fenced conservation areas. So they, you know, they it's, it's open areas where there's people interacting day to day with water fishing, um, and especially in those areas um, today, you know, there's 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 hardly any crocodiles remaining. Um, so there's been a there's been a, a huge pressure on our crocodiles in South Africa, which which is not necessarily the case with countries north of our borders like in Mozambique and Namibia and Zimbabwe you know going up into um, you know East Africa um, they they still have a lot more crocodiles than we have and will that possibly be because they're further into the uh, Niles crocodiles range whereas South Africa is more on the edge both environmental and physical edge of where they can live yeah, so we we on the edge of of the range, so that definitely has got um, that definitely plays plays into it. So the more north you go, closer to the tropics, obviously, um, you know, there's just a lot more habitat available for for crocs. Um, while in South Africa, we have sort of a very disjunct, um, you know, populations, and and also they're highly fragmented. So. Um, maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, a lot of the rivers, uh, there would have been linkages for crocodiles to move between protected areas. But nowadays, with a lot of water abstraction and water use, uh, a lot of those rivers has gone dry or, you know, it's it's just not possible. So we're also sitting with, with sort of highly fragmented populations um, and, and and that, that you know, populations that, some of them genetically are, are already sort of going extinct. Um, so they're very isolated. Um, so that is a big concern from a conservation perspective. Yeah. So uh, environmentally on this uh, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, Lake St. Lucia, um, how seasonal is it at these, you know, southern part of their range? Like how much of a swing in temperature is it between uh, winter and summer? Yeah, so that that is quite interesting because um, there's there's a very big difference between summer and winter 
the dry um, sort of uh, winter season and the wet summer season. Um, and that also sort of influenced the ecology of the species. So what we do see, um, we do see a seasonal shift in, um, in where the crocodiles are in the different times of the year. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in, in summer, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of Fahrenheit, but uh, in terms of Celsius, you know, it, it really, we have warm summer seasons, but in the winter, it, it gets actually really cold. Um, one interesting thing, maybe in terms of that, you know, we've, we've captured crocodiles throughout the winter. So being opportunistic predators, uh, crocodiles will always go into traps, you know, even though it is, it's cool. But uh, the the season is is very different within the winter, and uh, we suspect that they don't naturally eat a lot within the winter season when it's a lot cooler. Um, now, when I talk about cool winter, I'm not talking about like uh, North Carolina where you have alligators, you know, in really really cold temperatures. So it's not like that at all um, in 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 Saint Lucia. Uh, it, it don't really, in terms of ambient temperature, it doesn't really get colder than maybe five or six or seven degrees Celsius. But uh, um, it, it's still very different to the much warmer uh, um, summer climate. Yeah, when when they are a lot more active um, and and obviously feeding and and breeding and nesting in the summer season. Yeah, the reason I brought that up is because one of my crocodile mentors. Uh, he lives in Southeast Texas and he has a large collection of Nile crocs and most winters he's able, able to keep them outdoors year round perfectly fine. Whereas a lot of the more tropical species, he has to pull indoors for the winter. So, right. you, I mean, they're not an American alligator or a Chinese alligator, but they're still a lot more cold tolerant than say a salty. Yeah. 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 And, and I think maybe, uh, I mean the croc, the crocodiles in South Africa, perhaps even more so than some of the more sort of tropical, um, uh, uh, crocodiles in 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 Kenya and Tanzania. Um, so yeah, no, they they definitely are adapted. Uh, you know, with with the, the the cooler weather down in the south. Yeah. So uh, I had Mark Merchant on. He was talking about his research with uh, alligator coloration. How in the more northern, cooler parts of the climate, alligators are a lot darker colored than the, in the southern, warmer portions. Um, so are Nile crocs in South Africa noticeably darker colored than uh, more tropical populations? Um, they, they, to my knowledge, there has not any research been done. Um, just anecdotally, what we've seen is that um, individuals within Cozy Bay, where there's um, a lot of forests where they occur, um, they tend to be darker in color. Um, so, but yeah, that's just sort of anecdotal evidence. Um, it's, it's never been sort of, we've, we've never done a study in terms of that. So what we do find is you, you do get sort of your more yellow crocodiles as well as the, the more sort of, you know, green, brown, darker individuals inter, intermixed within these populations. So yeah, there's been, to my knowledge, no study ever been done. And I don't think there's a very definite, uh, uh, you know, sort of color coloration difference um, that I'm aware of. All right. Um, let's see. So you also did work, uh, you also wrote, were a co-author on the paper about the ecological importance of crocodilians uh, and sort of uh, towards an evidence-based justification for their uh, conservation, which is a, I mean, it's nice to say, you know, conserve something for the sake of conserving it, but 
uh, I've always find it really important to provide another uh, hands-on reason why something should be conserved. So, yeah, I mean, in in South Africa, I mean, the the big thing here is that um, I think uh, uh, one of the main reasons why we are losing uh, a lot of our crocodiles is because of the you know, because there's no link in terms of sustainable use. So, I mean, same thing in the States and in Australia, you've got that clear link. Um, uh, a lot of the um, the farms ranch their eggs from, from free roaming populations. In South Africa, we only have uh, closed circuit crocodile farming. So that, that's good in, it, in itself because it does take away pressure from the wild populations. But the, the problem with that is that you, you lose that link between the wild populations um, and that real conservation value of the species. So one of the things that we uh, would like to do is to try and encourage ranching programs where we, you know, um, sort of allow local people that live with crocodiles to become beneficiaries of their conservation um, so that that it really is one of one of our key things to to look at for the future. You know, how can we reestablish the the, the value um, within the species? Um, because you know, in in Southern Africa or in Africa, um, it's really it's really a conservation value. It's not just protecting species, but it's trying to conserve them because of the real benefit that they can bring to people and livelihoods. Yeah. So, I mean, one possible way they're kind of important is, well, they're an apex predator, so they're all automatically a keystone species. But tying back into your previous research with uh, lead and heavy metals and DDT, I'm guessing they'll also be a good uh, bioindicator of uh, toxin buildup in an environment. Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, they're a great study organism because of the fact that they are long-lived um, and they are apex predators. So... They're really great, specifically in terms of organopesticides that bioaccumulate lead, same thing. Um, so, so generally, um, you know, if, if you have declining crocodile populations, never mind the, um, the, the, the sort of the biological side to it, it often tells you that there's something wrong in the system, um, that there's mismanagement. Um, uh, and unfortunately, in, in South Africa, uh, we have great legislation for water quality and um, but we we're sitting with some of the most polluted rivers in southern Africa um, and a number of years ago I think it was in 2008 um, there was a, a mortality event in Kruger National Park which is one of our largest uh, you know wildlife areas um, where we possibly up to 400 adult crocodiles died from a disease um, called pansteatitis. So that, that was a big red flag that went up because here you have a, a national park um, and you have, you know, 400 crocodiles um, dead within the space of a few months. Um, and and it just, it, it's just a, a sign that, you know, that, that there is a, there's a big issue, you know, within the system and within the catchment and within in the management of the catchment. So that is very frustrating that, uh, you know, conservation uh, agencies needs to deal with these um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, issues like pollution and contaminants 
way down um, the catchment level and uh, where they don't often have any control in terms of legislation and specifically enforcement of legislation. Um, because as I've mentioned, we've got great legislation in this country, but unfortunately, it, it really is not is not effective. And we're sitting with, with huge problems in terms of water quality and eutrophication and river flow, um, you know, within our river system. So it, it's a big concern. Yeah. So one thing, especially with crocodilians, all large predators is uh, with their conservation is the difficulty in uh, with their conflicts with uh, human populations, whether it be like competing for food sources or unfortunately uh, lethal attacks on humans. Uh, so what's what's kind of the scale slash form of uh, human crocodile conflict in South Africa? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we have human croc conflict um, in, in all the provinces. So we got crocodiles in four provinces within South Africa. Um, um, and uh, thankfully, it is not near the level um, of uh, countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe, um, Kenya, um, maybe even Namibia. But uh, yeah, so on average, um, there is easily four or five or six uh, attacks that we know of uh, within South Africa. Um, and, and of all the provinces, KwaZulu-Natal is you know, the province where most of these attacks occur because um, a lot of people live, you know, with crocodiles. They, they interact daily within the same water bodies. Um, as I've mentioned before, they fish. Um, so they, they is, there is human croc conflict. Um, I think three weeks ago, a, a wilderness trails officer was attacked by a crocodile within Kruger National Park. Uh, thankfully, he survived it. Um, but uh, it it happens, um, but but it isn't it isn't near the level, thankfully, of 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 the countries north of South Africa. Yeah, and this is just something anecdotally that I've noticed is uh, the countries with the highest amount of uh, modern plumbing have lowest lower amounts of crocodilian attacks. Just what it seems like to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So toilets are really important. So. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, we have uh, one one thing which is true for almost all of our protected areas is that it is surrounded by a lot of poor people, um, people that's reliant on resources uh, from from the water, that's reliant on water, um, and and therefore, you know, human croc conflict is just. It, 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 it's very much a reality, um, not only in South Africa, but also, you know, north of, of South Africa, um, where, where the extent, I think, is, is, a lot, is a lot greater. But yeah, people do come in conflict with crocodiles, maybe a lot more than in countries like uh, the United States or Australia. Yeah. Uh, so besides uh, Nile crocs, are there any other species you do uh, research with? Uh, no, so on uh, what there is Mekistop uh, and do occur in um, in Zambia. So there is a there's a student working with uh, Dr. Matt Shirley um, in that in in, for, in that population. But yeah, I'm not directly involved um, uh, with with any other species at this stage. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ecologically, um, with now crocs. 
you mentioned uh, fish, but in particular, what it sort of makes up the bulk of their diet? Yeah, I mean, like, so uh, um, in, in terms of, of, of Nile crocs, I think fish, in terms of the studies that, that we've done, uh, John, I've mentioned uh, Dr. John Warner, um, he've, he's done a, a stable isotope study and and it seems like fish is, is definitely the, you know, the most prevalent um, food item for crocs. But um, there's a particular interesting case um, in the Olifants River where we did a study a couple of years ago. Um, also, it was a stable isotope study. I was just a co-author on that study. And we, we actually found that the majority um, of, the, of, of the prey items in that system was from the terrestrial uh, side. So um, not fish, but, uh, um, you know, terrestrial prey. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but generally, uh, uh, fish, especially in places like uh, the St. Lucia estrine system, um, you know, they, fish definitely is the predominant um, prey item um, for, for, for crocodiles. Yeah. So as they grow, of course, they, they change a bit. Um, and, and the larger crocodile definitely also uh, take larger mammals um, like, like antelope, wildebeest, buffalo, etc. But definitely fish seems to be... But they're opportunistic. I mean, and we've seen large crocodiles at night still, you know, um, going for small fish even. So it, it's not just the big crocs that goes for the big, you know, big prey items. They, they're very opportunistic. Um, yeah. Calories are calories, no matter how big the package is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in terms of predation, I mean, obviously, young ju juvenile crocs are on the menu for just about anything and everything around the water. But um, older adult crocs, do they have any natural predators outside of man or another bigger croc? Yeah, yeah. So uh, not, not really. Yeah. So, I mean... Um, John Hutton described that ecological separation. So what we also see uh, in South Africa is that um, your, your juvenile crocs, uh, the first couple of years, they tend to hang around within wetland areas. And you don't really see them going into uh, interacting with larger crocodiles, basking on sandbanks, etc. Um, but when they do get bigger, they, they then will join some of the other crocs. But I've seen uh, even like two-meter crocodiles Fall, fall prey to other larger crocs. So they they definitely, um, you know, regulate their own populations without a doubt. But uh, yeah, apart from man, um, once they sort of, you know, uh, over a meter or so, there's, there's hardly any predators that actually pose a threat to them. When they're really small, um, a lot of things eat crocs. I mean, big fish, um, herons, fish eagles, um, so monitor lizards. Uh, so they, there's there's a lot of other um, you know animals that will that will feed on 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 baby crocs, young crocs, hatchlings or or yearlings, even two or three year old crocodiles. But uh, later on, it's it's only other crocs, and then of course people, unfortunately. Yeah. So now crocs are often considered to be one of the most uh, social. I guess is the best word to describe it of of all the crocs. Uh, so, how, how complex do you say their social structure is uh, compared to other crocodilians? Yeah, so, I mean, we definitely see huge congregations, specifically in wintertime. So, 
Uh, I was involved for many, many years uh, just counting crocodiles from the air. Um, so what we would typically do in our winter season is do these aerial surveys in populations like St. Lucia and other populations. Uh, and, and that's really true for most of the larger populations in, in South Africa is that at least once a year, those large populations are surveyed from the air. And we do see these massive uh, congregations um, in, in wintertime. So, um, you know, they are very much social, I think a lot more so than, for instance, uh, the saltwater crocodiles. Um, and we think the, 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 the social side in winter has a lot to do with reproduction. So uh, that's where most of the mating occur. And then after, after winter, going into spring, those congregations then break down um, as those uh, females will then move to nesting areas and the males will also return to, to other parts of the system. So there is a definite shift within populations where they congregate in, in winter. And, and you have literally three, four, five hundred crocodiles within a few kilometers, um, which is which is quite nice to see. Um, um, but yeah, so that that is interesting. And there's not a, a lot of research that I'm aware of in terms of the social side. Tony Pooley, which was sort of one of the pioneers um, and uh, uh, you know researchers uh, in in South Africa. Sorry. Um, just give me one second, thanks. Yep. Sorry, I just want to switch this softer. Um, yeah. He did a lot of, he did quite a bit of work on the social side, and but but most of his work was conducted within the the Saint Lucia Crocodile Centre. So uh, you know where he did a lot of observational work um, as well as some work within the system. So he. He published quite a bit of that um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, female behavior with hatchlings and uh, uh, that that type of uh, of thing. But yeah, that is, you know, the social side is, is is quite interesting. But we don't fully understand, you know, the complexities um, around that um, as well as we should maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, females in general go off to more of nesting locations. Whereas males go to slightly different parts of the uh, the area, is is that like a yeah. solid, yeah. noticeable behavior? Yeah. So I mean, the the uh, what we found in Saint Lucia, and and also interestingly, so um, I'm involved in a study in Tanzania uh, where we have some uh, crocodiles with, uh, with 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 satellite transmitters on. And again, they, there's a definite shift between the cooler and the, the wet season. So it seems like um, Nile crocs do um, utilize different parts of the system, you know, during different times of the year. So these females would, would, would literally go to a specific place where there's huge congregations. And then from there, they would move often 15, 20, 30, 40 kilometers to other parts where they would then... Um, have you know construct their nests within particular nesting areas and those nesting areas are reused as i've mentioned before uh, year after year um within the constraints of fresh water because uh, we always see that they 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 do need fresh water near where they are nesting so for instance in saint lucia 
when it's really dry in the north, um, there is a shift of nesting activities more towards the southern section of the system where there's constant water uh, supply, fresh water supply. So, um, and then the males, yeah, they would they would go back to their own home ranges uh, where, there's, where there's obviously females. But yeah, so there's this definite congregation within this within the winter and then uh, a movement into other parts of the system for the rest of the year. Yeah. So I'm guessing these congregation sites are more like the deeper bo water bodies, uh, deeper reservoirs within the uh, water system. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that tend to be close to deeper water. I mean, obviously for mating activities, they do need deeper water. Um, so um, it's it's always near water bodies and then nice basking areas. So typically open sandy areas where where they can bask um, and at night uh, go into the water again. Because especially in winter, uh, the ambient temperatures um, can get really cold. So croc crocodiles tend to then uh, be in the water at night and and uh, even. Um, select, you know, uh, deeper areas within the water body uh, where they would then uh, frequent the night, spend the night. Yeah. Um, I covered quite a bit. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, well, yeah, just the, the, the main thing is just, uh, yeah, our concern, you know, in, in, in South Africa in terms of you know the, the the declining populations. The other thing maybe is also we we having a, a crocodile monitoring uh, network meeting um, uh, in a couple of months where we're going to try and get the provinces to work closer together because one of the challenges in South Africa is that we have these four provinces with with Nile crocodiles, um, but there's really no linkages. There's no sort of um, collaboration at the provincial conservation agency level. Um, so provinces do supply um, uh, monitoring numbers uh, uh, for CITES, but uh, what, one of our biggest challenges is to try and, uh, um, you know, get these provinces to work together better and, and also work towards a um, developing a, um, a null crocodile biodiversity management plan because we have management plans for species like lion, um, um, wild dog, rhino, but um, we don't have a, a sort of a, a national um, biodiversity plan for, for Nile crocodiles. So that's kind of one of the things that we we need to do. And the the IUC in crocodile specialist group is we, we're very active within South Africa and uh, that is um, one way uh, that we do collaborate. Um, but they, they definitely, at, at the national government level and at the provincial level, there is a big need to try and work sort of closer together. Um, so that's one of our challenges. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's been great chatting to you. And yeah. uh, great, great podcast. Thanks. Thanks for your efforts. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Great, man. Take care, hey? You too. Okay. Bye-bye.